Well, greetings once again, brethren, and welcome back to another Wednesday night Bible study. We are going to study, God willing, uh, today and the next few weeks, uh, the book of Colossians. And this is the last of the prison epistles. There are four epistles written by the Apostle Paul, and they're called the prison epistles because he wrote them while he was in prison. Uh, a few years ago, actually, I think the very first study that we did was Philippians. And we did that several years ago. That was the first of the prison epistles that we covered. Uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles, we covered the epistle to the Ephesians. Last week, we covered Philemon. And God willing, now we're covering Colossians. So those are the four prison epistles. And Philemon and Colossians are uh, both written to the brethren in the church at Colossae. So let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll get into this last of the prison epistles. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we're just so grateful to you, Lord, for your word. We're so grateful to you, Father, for Jesus Christ, and all that you have accomplished through him. And we just thank you, God, that you have placed us in him, especially in this time of uh, great challenge for the church, Father. We just pray that you'll strengthen us by your word. We thank you again that we have access to it. We ask your blessing in our study now in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So <clears throat> we are now uh, studying this uh, great book of, e uh, of um, Colossians, the, the fourth of the prison epistles. And it opens up saying Paul, and he identifies himself in this uh, letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And remember last week when we studied uh, Philemon, he did not position himself as an apostle. But here he's speaking to the brethren. And this book, he is tackling false doctrine. And so he really wants to ensure that the brethren know he is speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so you can compare his teaching now to the uh, others who are, you know, whatever role they pretend they're, they're in. They're not apostles of Jesus Christ. Uh, so he positions himself, and it's important for us to know, you know, who has been ordained into what office and why. Uh, because Christ tells us we're going to be uh, faced with false teachers. So we want to know, like, who are the true teachers of Christ? Uh, we can, and, and he says we shall know them by their fruits. So we, we've got to be careful, um, first of all, whom has God selected and, and ordained in the office of teacher, official teachers on his behalf? And then we shall know them by their fruits. Uh, we watch the fruits take time. So we watch over time to see what their fruit are. But here Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he doesn't stop there. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This, this was by God's will that he has been placed into the apostleship. And then included as uh, authoring the letter is Timothy, our brother. But Timothy is not an apostle. Uh, Christ, is, uh, Christ sent the apostle Paul along with the other 11 apostles. Now, this um, notion that he's an apostle by the will or by the desire of God, uh, he really made that clear what he meant when he wrote to the Galatian church, where he says, but when it pleased God, so this is God's pleasure, God's will, who separated me from my mother's womb. So God selected this particular messenger or tool of God right from the womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen and then he says that he did not confer with flesh and blood so this is God's pleasure to separate Paul from his womb and, and use him as a vehicle so he identifies himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ 
uh, by the will of God. So God the Father made this possible. So that's who the letter is from. It's from the Apostle Paul and our brother Timothy. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. So this is now to the church in Colossae, to the saints and faithful brethren. Grace be unto you and peace. And that's a, quite a typical greeting from the Apostle where he uh, pronounces both grace and peace. Um, shalom, the, the, the Hebrew greeting, and then grace, more of the, the Greek brethren's greeting. Uh, and this letter truly is a, a lot about grace. And our brother, uh, Deacon Jan, just this past Sabbath, it's amazing the timing, just this past Sabbath gave a remarkable sermon entitled, um, I think it was, what, what is God's grace all about? What is God's grace all about? I would really encourage you, if you did not, uh, if you were not tuning in on Sabbath and did not hear that message, to check out the archives and look up the sermon, What is God's Grace All About? by Deacon Jan. I think that um, if, if we read grace here and we don't have the understanding that our brother Jan brought to us on Sabbath, then we can just be reading in the back of our minds or thinking in the back of our minds that this is what we'll call cheap grace. Cheap grace, it's not rooted in the scriptures, it's not rooted in the Torah. So I would really encourage you, I'm not going to repeat what he taught there in his sermon, but I'd really encourage you to listen to that sermon so you have a very strong understanding of what it means when we say God's grace. So here he says, grace be unto you and peace, and that peace is an extension then of true grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the introduction. And he says now, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith, and here this you is uh, plural. It's you in the plural, he's speaking to the whole congregation. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. So a very um, active congregation, a very faithful congregation. And um, the Apostle Paul did not found this congregation. So this congregation was founded by other men. And news came to, to Paul and Timothy about the progress of this congregation. And in that, the Apostle Paul rejoiced. And so he heard of their faith. He did not establish this church. So since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, and we'll see later that it's most likely Epaphras that uh, brought this news to him. So uh, they heard of this, uh, and so he says, we're giving thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And what are they praying for? Verse 5, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So this is all about the hope. And the hope is not like, oh, I, you know, I hope I win a million dollars. Some people play lottery or they gamble and they hope that they win. This is not what uh, the apostle means by the word hope. It's, it's the earnest expectation. This is the faith. So this, this expectation uh, of this uh, entrance into the kingdom, which is laid up for you in heaven. It doesn't mean that we're going to heaven. It means that God is in heaven and the, our destiny is with him and Christ is returning to earth to establish his kingdom on earth, and our hope is in that kingdom that Christ will establish on earth. He says, 
uh, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So the gospel was preached to them, and that's how the church was established, which has come unto you as it is in all the world. So this uh, Apostle Paul himself went all through uh, Asia, Asia Minor, preaching the gospel, and others have then taken up, and this gospel is spreading, and brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. And again, that word grace and that understanding of what, what grace actually means and how it's brought about uh, in, the, in the sermon, what is, grace all, what is God's grace all about. As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. So this is the indication we have that it was perhaps Epaphras who helped found this church because they learned from him. Uh, who is your faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras declared unto them the gospel, but then Epaphras came to the Apostle Paul while he was in prison and gave a very good report of the brethren in Colossae, as well as perhaps some of the issues they were facing with false doctrines creeping in. And so that's what prompted Paul to write to them and, and first of all give thanks for their faithfulness and for their love of the brethren. Uh, he will talk about Epaphras later in chapter 4 where he says Epaphras who is one of you, he's of Colossae, a servant of Christ, so Paul is an apostle of Christ, Epaphras is a servant of Christ, he salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. So this is a faithful minister and, he's, and, and Paul and him together would most likely be praying and he's just seeing how the love that Epaphras has for these brethren and always laboring fervently for them in prayers. What? And what is he praying? That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So they really, they're, they're a young church, they're a more primarily a Gentile church. They've got to come into the full understanding of the will of God and stand perfect and complete in that understanding. Back to chapter 1. For this cause we also, and so this cause, let's go back to verse 8. Um, so verse 7, as you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause, because of this very good report about the brethren, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. So Epaphras was praying that they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will, and they'd be complete in the knowledge of his will, and this is what the Apostle Paul has been praying. This young, this young church, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul heard of their establishment, uh, and, and their faithfulness and their love for the, for the, for the truth and for the brethren. Uh, the, from the moment he heard of this church, he has not ceased, or he and Timothy, have not ceased to pray for them and to desire that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. So a lot of people, a lot of Christians discount knowledge. And because they discount knowledge, they discount teachers. And they think it's just all, oh, it's just a heart thing. It's just, just feel, just me and the Lord. And I just feel good about my service in the Lord and my relationship with God. It's just a good feeling and I, I just feel the spirit. Uh, whereas Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles primarily, was just constantly, constantly praying that they would mature in the knowledge, that they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will. 
that they really come to understand with what he is doing. What is God's will? What is he doing in the earth? So that they can be in alignment with his will, not working against his will. And unfortunately, it's sad to say, many Christians are actually working against God's will because they haven't taken the time to understand what is it. And they're allowing false doctrine to creep in and to divide the body of Christ and to turn them against their own brothers and sisters in Christ because they do not understand what is the will of God. And desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So this is, this, this is what matters, that we have all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that we can fully appreciate and understand the knowledge of his will. What is he doing? Now this is quite similar to what we studied in the book of Ephesians, and I, I don't want to repeat the study of Ephesians here that is in the archive, but I, I, I have to mention it anyway, so that we can see the, the alignment. These, this is also another prison epistle. And we can see the deep understanding that the Apostle Paul has that he's trying to impart to the brethren, not only in uh, Ephesians, Ephesus, but also in Colossae. So he's saying here that he wants them to come to this, uh, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In Ephesians 3, in verse, beginning in verse 4, and I just wanted to take one verse, and I said, no, I need the verse before, I, and I just need to take a passage here. In verse 4, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So he wants the brethren at Ephesus to understand how much the Apostle Paul understands of the mystery of Christ, that most people don't understand what is going on, but Paul understood, and he wanted the brethren in Ephesus to understand, which means that they must first acknowledge how much he understands, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this is the mystery of the ages. This is the mystery that nobody understood, that in other ages it wasn't made known to the sons of men, but now it's been revealed to the holy uh, apostles and prophets through the Holy Spirit. And this is the mystery, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That this thing that was completely cut off from the Gentiles had nothing to do with the Gentiles. In fact, I shouldn't say had nothing to do with the Gentiles. The only participation that the Gentiles had in this will of God was to be the enemies of the covenant people, to be the, the tool or the mechanism through which he would caused the persecution and the suffering of the people of God, and then they in turn would, would be punished for their evil work, and evil works and their, their persecution of the covenant people. That's it. They had no inheritance with the saints and with the covenant people, but it was a mystery from the beginning that God had intended always to bring the Gentiles into this fellowship. And that's what he wanted the brethren at Ephesus to understand. And that's what he wants the, the Gentile brethren in Colossae to come to understand as well. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Through this preaching of the gospel, their minds can be opened and they can be grafted in. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. So this is the will of God, to place, the apostle, to place Paul into the apostleship as a slave of God, um, just according to the gift of his grace, 
Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, that this truth is mind-blowing. It, it is hard to comprehend, and you would never find it out by yourself. The only way we could come to know this truth is by revelation. It's unsearchable. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, that we can come to understand his will. What is the will of God? What is he doing on the earth? That, that this through the gospel, we can make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. That it was intended from the very beginning, but it's been hidden until now. Who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent. Why, why was it hidden until now? What's God's will? To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So, so God has this incredible unsearchable wisdom that he has a will, he has a plan, it, it is inaccessible and it has been hidden to, to the sons of men until he chose to reveal it in Christ. And now the apostle having this knowledge in Christ has, is now through the gospel making it known to the Gentile world. And God is taken from the Gentile world and grafting them in to this covenant community. And this is a great mystery that even the principalities and powers had no idea. And again, in this uh, past sermon, Deacon Jan speaks about this and how they had no, even Satan himself had no idea and ended up cutting his own throat. Uh, when, he, when he was crucifying Christ, he didn't realize he was bringing about his own destruction because he didn't know this great mystery. But now the church knows, and it's our job to make known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly this great mystery. So back to Colossians uh, 1. So that insight that we see that he's trying to um, convey to Ephesus, he's trying to convey the same insight and understanding to Colossae as well. So he, he says to them, he wants them to come into this full understanding of God's will, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing, there it is again, in the knowledge of God. We must grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Knowledge is huge for the Christian. We are students. We study. Knowledge matters. And, and don't be around brethren who discount knowledge. Don't be around brethren who say, oh, you don't need to study. It's just, you just have to believe. Just believe. These are the brethren that will be easily seduced. These are the brethren that will be easily hijacked and will run after nonsense because they haven't been able to root themselves in the knowledge of God. Now, that they might walk worthy, this same knowledge that he's conveying to, to Colossae, the brethren at Colossae, this is the same knowledge he was conveying to the brethren in Ephesus. So here he is in prison with this deep understanding, and it's amazing how you would see, oh, Paul's been imprisoned, what a horrible thing, and yet that, that enabled him, gave him the time to write these incredible epistles, to, to go deep into thought and meditation and prayer and, and, and fasting and, and write these things, and, and, and now they're recorded for thousands of years, and we have access to this deep knowledge. So the same way that he passed on this knowledge to um, Colossae, he, he had passed it the same knowledge on to Ephesus. 
And we saw in the first three chapters of Ephesus, he's really giving them the understanding. So then in the last three chapters of Ephesus, uh, the church to, to Ephesus, or the letter to Ephesus, uh, he is telling them what to do based on this understanding. And we see that here in Colossae, that you have to have this understanding so that you can walk worthy. And here in Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I'm begging you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So there's a certain level of conduct that, that this, this great mystery is so mind-blowing and so profound that there's a behavior that's required of us that is also profound. That all the people around us, we can't behave like them. We have to be on a completely different level. And that's what he was saying to, that's what he was saying to Ephesus, and that's what he was saying here to the brethren at Colossae. So he wants them to walk worthy. And then he says in verse 11, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. And again, he speaks of this glorious power in the, in the letter to Ephesus. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. It's not, it's not physical might. It's not, you know, egotistical might. And I'm just going to be so great. No, it's spiritual. And it comes from God himself. The same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Brethren, we should not be hysterical people. We should not be people caught up with the here and now. So we're in the midst now of this uh, U.S. election. Uh, you know, the election was uh, last week. Uh, here we are in, in November, early November 2020. And there's uh, allegations of fraud. And so they're in a, not in a position to declare who actually won the election yet. The, the, the Electoral College will do that. Um, but you know, the country's more or less divided, 50-50. And, uh, you know, if one candidate is successful, half the country is elated, the other half is furious. If it turns out that that somehow conclusion was incorrect and the other candidate is going to be successful, well, that, that half of the country is going to be thrilled, and the other half is going to be furious. But either way, uh, Satan is doing his work of stirring up humanity to, to violence and hatred, and also tearing down America, destroying America, and removing this, this city on a shining hill, the, bastion of free, the last bastion of freedom for mankind. It's Satan's desire to destroy that and to bring America down. Uh, so as all of this happens, it's easy to get caught up in the hysteria. But we must walk worthy of this vocation. And our minds must be set on something much, much higher than what happens in this world. Yes, dark days are ahead. Oh yes, very dark days are ahead. If Satan has his way and freedom is removed, from the earth and Marxism, global Marxism surrounds the earth uh, along with all the other ideologies that want to remove freedom of choice from men and oppress men. Uh, it's going to be very dark days for Christians. But we don't get hysterical. We don't get hysterical. Our sights are set on something much higher. And because of that, we are strengthened with this supernatural power from God and because of this supernatural power from God, we are able to have patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. 
that even though this dark winter is coming upon us, this great darkness is coming upon us, uh, we can still have joy. And that joy comes from this patience and long-suffering, which comes from this deep understanding we have of what God is doing on the earth. He says, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And again, go back to the study on Ephesians, where we see this incredible blessing of God opening up this inheritance to the Gentile world and enabling the, those of us in the Gentile world to be grafted in to the covenant community. So we give thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness. The whole world is under this power of darkness. But God has handpicked us, and, and he's delivered us. And this is part of the process of salvation, is to deliver us from this power. And again, I refer to, I think, this, this, the sermon that uh, Deacon Jan did on Sabbath was such a fantastic introduction to this study on Colossians to show that part of the process of salvation is delivering us from the power of sin, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And this is what this letter is all about, his dear son. And just how central Jesus Christ is to everything that God is doing. And that if, if false doctrine is going to creep into a congregation, it's going to creep into that congregation because they do not understand just how central Jesus Christ is to the plan of God and just how glorious Jesus Christ is and what a great marvel it is for us to be grafted in to the body of Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul is going to really get across to the brethren here at Colossae, is just how central and glorious Jesus Christ is to the plan of God and to the life of the Christian. So he's delivered us from the power of darkness and he's translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That's where we are now. We are translated into his kingdom and we're waiting for that kingdom to be uh, brought about by Christ himself when he returns and we will be a part of that kingdom. Now concerning being delivered from the power of this darkness, this again is the exact same thing. The insight that he was writing to the brethren at Ephesus where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all, not some, but with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. This was the mystery, that Gentiles have a place in this calling, in this covenant, but it was hidden. It's been the mystery of the ages, but now it's been revealed in Christ, that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then dropping down to verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, so similar to, to what he's writing to the brethren at Colossae, he, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. This is his prayer. 
very similar to what he's praying for the brethren at Colossae, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. This is the Apostle's Prayer, that you'll know the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Like, brethren, if we understand this, we are not getting caught up in the affairs. We're not getting entangled in the affairs of this world. This is our focus, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us? This is incredible power. We have to understand just how great this power is that we have access to. No matter how dark it is around us, there's a light that we have. There's access to a powerful light that we have. And he wants the brethren to come to understand this. And us, by extension, we must come to understand this. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead. That same power that raised from Christ from the dead, that's the power that's working in us. And set him at his own right hand in the heavenly. And then in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you has he made alive, which were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of the world. Now we can walk worthy of this vocation. But prior to having access to this power, we were trapped under the power of darkness. And we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So I unpacked that in detail in the study on Ephesians. If you missed that study, I would encourage you to go into the archives. And we have to study, brethren. Soon we may not have access to the Word of God. We may have to be going from memory and, and you know scraps or whatever we can find as electronic media may be removed from us. Uh, who knows what the future, this, this dark winter, uh, and that's a good phrase that's being used by, by uh, one of the candidates to describe the future. Uh, we are heading into a spiritual dark winter. It's going to be dark and cold. And we need to be ready, brethren. We need to be preparing for this. And we need to be taking the study of the Word of God seriously and you know, maybe even downloading these messages so that we have them locally and we're not depending on what's in the cloud, uh, which can be easily cut off and turned off and we can be uh, cut off from it. Uh, so we need to be studying and really getting this and being established in this truth so that the whole Bible makes sense to us and we can go anywhere. And when somebody's preaching something from, from the so-called from the Word of God, we can say, no, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't line up with what Isaiah taught. That doesn't line up with Torah. That doesn't line up with Revelation. That doesn't line up with what the Apostle Paul, what Jesus Christ himself taught. Because we know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that's why we do these studies. So we have been uh, released from this dark power. And we have access to this incredible, exceeding great power that God has given us access to through Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And this is something that, again, traditional Christianity can take and cheapen. But this is very deep and very profound and has everything to do with the covenant that we now have redemption through his blood, that, that the, 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 the Jewish community who, uh, who have retained the, the covenant relationship with God, northern Israel being divorced, uh, the southern kingdom retaining the covenant, but still being under the curse of the covenant, and gaining redemption through the blood of Christ, that the curse would be upon Christ 
and they could gain redemption through his blood. And we Gentiles being grafted into all of this, and we ourselves can gain redemption now through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. That's what Jesus Christ is. The very image of the invisible God. If we've seen him, we've seen the Father. Our study of Christ, our understanding of Christ helps us understand the Father. Because Christ is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, the prototokos of every creature. He's the firstborn. What does that mean? If he's the image, and man is made in the image and likeness of God, but if he's the, the very image of the invisible God, the, the exact replica of the invisible God, but he's also the firstborn of, 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 of every creature, then that, he didn't say only born. He said first, proto. That means there's going to be a second and a third and there's going to be others. He's the firstborn. For by him were all things created. This again is the centrality of Christ, how central Christ is to the plan of God and everything God is doing and to the very glory of God. For by Christ were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Everything. That the whole creative effort and function was delegated to Christ. Christ created everything. For by him were all things created. And this is where, you know, uh, we're dealing with false doctrines, false ideologies. And we are going to withstand and, 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 and beat back all of these false ideologies with this single truth. That by Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and are in earth. And, you know, one of these ideologies that's spreading like wildfire all over the earth, and especially in the Western world, is Islam. And in this teaching, Christ is just a man. He's a prophet. Oh, we love this prophet, but he's, he's nothing compared to Muhammad. And he's just a prophet. And we can't, and, and people are going along with this and saying, we've got to have Chris Lamb and cooperate and find a way and, and, and create this sort of syncretism uh, with Islam which the church at Colossae was dealing with syncretism as well. They were taking the understanding of Torah and scriptures and mixing that with pagan uh, teachings. And that was beginning to infiltrate the brethren at Colossae. And Paul is now giving them an, an inoculation against false teachings. And this is the inoculation. When you get this, no false teaching can overtake you. That Christ created everything in heaven and on earth visible and invisible so you know what's the saying put that in your pipe and smoke it so we cannot cooperate or coordinate or or go alongside any ideology that is going to diminish jesus christ because the truth is christ is above everything and everyone except god the father he's under the father but over everything else and he created everything else and that is the truth that we defend, that we use to defend ourselves against satanic doctrine and teaching. For by Christ were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And so Islam, I mentioned, is spreading all over the earth. The other ideology, the other satanic ideology that is spreading all over the earth is Marxism. In one case, we want to make this moon god the greatest god. In the case of Marxism, we want to make the state 
the government, the God. And everybody must bow down and do as the state says and worship the state, and the state has absolute control. And both ideologies end up controlling every aspect of human life. You can't sneeze, you can't cough, you can't wake up in the morning, you can't go bed to bed at night, you can't eat, unless they dictate to you exactly how to do what and when and, and, and where. That, that, that is, Satan wants to be like the Most High. He wants, to make, he wants to prove that he is God. And he wants to prove that by having control over those made in the image and likeness of God and to have complete control over every aspect of our lives. And so whether Islam, whether Marxism, whether false Christianity, whether whatever the false ideology is that is trying to creep in to destroy the church, we are going to withstand it by this deep understanding of the central role of Jesus Christ. So whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, everything was created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. Wow. That is Jesus Christ. And even, you know, even in the, the Church of God tradition, there has been an, an, an attempt to minimize Christ and make it all about the Father. It's all about the Father. And we had one brother uh, join us some years ago, and uh, we were singing a hymn that was praising Christ. And he was offended. He was, we shouldn't be praising Christ. We should only praise the Father. That is false. We absolutely, uh, in, the, in, in the Gospel according to John, Christ himself says when we glorify uh, Christ, we glorify the Father. That it, it's the pleasure of God that we glorify Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is showing us here, just how central Christ is to everything God has in mind. And he is the head of the body, the church. The, the church is the body of Christ, who is the beginning, again, here it is again, the firstborn from the dead. So first he's the firstborn of all creation, of all creatures. Now Paul is even more specific. He's the firstborn from the dead. It's as if to say the grave is a type of womb. The, 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 the grave is pregnant with fetuses and it's given birth to the first one, which is Christ. So he's, he's the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence, that when there are others who are born from the dead, who, are, who come up from the grave. So, so we're born once into this physical being, and then we're born again, 1 Corinthians 15, into a new body, a, a pneumatic spiritual body. And that's our second birth. But Christ has already done this. And it's in his resurrection that we have hope and confidence of our future. And so he's the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have preeminence, that when others are also born from the dead, none of us can say that we, there can only be one firstborn from the dead. So even though we all come into this incredible glory, nobody can be higher than Christ because he's the firstborn from the dead. And in fact, when he was writing to uh, the Philippians in the first uh, prison epistle that we covered, in Philippians 2 and verse 9, he says, wherefore God also has highly exalted Christ. The Father has highly exalted Christ. It's the Father's will that nobody or, or nothing is higher than Christ except God himself. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. 
that, the, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every being will worship Christ. So that, that brother who came among us and we're singing a hymn, praising Christ, and he's offended. He, doesn't under, he didn't understand. It's God's will that every knee bows to Jesus Christ. Of things in heaven, even all the angelic beings in heaven will bow to Christ. And we have even brethren now taking the knee, taking the knee and bowing the knee to, to paganism, to Baalim. And the only knee that we will take is we will bow and bend the knee to Jesus Christ. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Now, that we, we, are, we acknowledge him as the firstborn from the dead, Listen to what Christ revealed to the Apostle John in Revelation, and we, this is also in the archive. Revelation 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and says here the first begotten, but it's the same word, prototokos. He's the firstborn of the dead. The faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Same thing the Apostle Paul is teaching. This is, this is a big part of the gospel. And notice now, he's the firstborn from the dead. And he's made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he is going to be this great king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's the firstborn from the dead to, to take on this, this office. But he's coming with this kingdom that we've been translated into. And we ourselves will be born from the dead. We will follow him. And we will be kings and priests as well. Back to Colossians 1. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This, this is God's pleasure. So anybody who tries to take away from Christ... To diminish Christ, to say, well, Christ is just an apostle, or he's just the Son of God. Don't pay attention to him. Focus entirely on the Father. Any diminishment of Christ is wrong, and it's against the pleasure of God. But any also it's wrong to diminish the Father and say that Christ and the Father are on the same level, and it's Christ the Father and the Holy Spirit, and they're co-equal, and the one is the same and not the same, and all, all this, this Trinitarian confusion. Uh, this is equally wrong, because Christ made it clear that he is under the Father. And it's by the Father's will that he's above all things and everything in heaven and in earth. So it pleased the Father, this is, this is God's good pleasure, that in Christ should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is again what we have to understand. What is this grace? What is this all about? God's grace. And how has he made peace through the blood of his cross? And, you know, this um, movement of traditional Christianity now, going back to the first century, uh, really, to the, I should say the fourth century, although it started in the first century, it really established itself in the fourth century. It, it is a, a peace without understanding of the covenant that Christians today come into Christ and if you were to ask them to explain the covenant to you they have no idea if you test them on the Torah they have no idea so how is it that we come into Christ and we have no understanding of the Torah we have no understanding of the covenant yet we're Christians when when it is through the blood of his cross 
that he has made peace. And that, that speaks directly to the covenantal relationship that God has with his people. And the anger, the wrath that they have incurred upon themselves according to the covenant. And that, that this curse, for God to be faithful, he has to carry out the curse upon them. And there is no peace for them except through the blood of Christ. That that is how God can remain faithful to all the curses of the covenant because he spoke them and he never goes against his word. So how does he remain faithful to his word and he's not a liar? Because you broke the covenant, these are the curse clauses that you must now live with. God cannot just say, oh, I changed my mind. That would make him a liar. But at the same time, he's made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to, to Israel that their seed will abide forever. And so how does he do this? How does he solve this? Well, he makes this resolution and this peace through the blood of the cross. By him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So let's just quickly, again, I've many, many times sort of the go-to scripture in the Torah. Let's go to Deuteronomy 30. As Moses is, a, is bidding goodbye to the children of Israel, he will not be going into the uh, promised land. They will be going into the promised land. But Moses was not just the great lawgiver, he was also a prophet. And as he looked at the children of Israel about to go into the promised land, he could also see their future. And he says in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 1, that it shall come to pass, this will happen, when all these things are come upon you, he just finished reading out Deuteronomy 28 and 29, which shows all the blessings of faithfulness to the covenant, but it also reveals all of the curses, severe, severe curses of the covenant, of breaking the covenant. And then he says to them, it shall come to pass, when all the blessings that I just pronounced to you have come upon you, but also all the curses. When all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Meaning, the curse will come after you. You'll enjoy the blessings for a little bit, but then the, because of the curse clauses, you will be scattered among all the nations. Because that's in the curse. That's in the curses. That when you're scattered and humiliated and despised and, 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 and just debased, that you then shall return. You'll repent. And return when you realize that there's no hope for you except in God. And you are brought to this final, what's called the darkest hour of the soul. You're brought to this point where you realize there's nothing else for you except God. The only, the only way out of this is through God's mercy. When you finally reach that point and stop relying upon yourself and your self-righteousness, that you shall return to the Lord your God and shall obey His voice according to all that I command you this day. So everything that he commanded them, he's also seeing a day when they actually will obey it. So, so the uh, prophet Moses is looking into the future and he's actually seeing a spiritual conversion of the children of Israel. He's seeing them receiving the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit enabling them to be faithful finally to everything that he has taught that you shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. This is spiritual language. This is Holy Spirit realization. 
that then when you finally reach this point and God pours out his Holy Spirit upon you in the end time, after you've suffered, that then the Lord your God will end your captivity. There, there will be peace. Because all of this captivity was in God's anger and wrath toward you as his covenant people. But he can't let go of you. He's made a covenant with you. He's not just going to drop you. Because then he would be breaking his promise to Abraham. So how does he make this? How does he end this? Well, there seems to be, a Mo Moses seems to understand that there's going to be some mechanism through which God will accept repentance from the covenant people. And that has been determined from the foundation of the world, that the Lamb of God would be slain. And through his blood, he would make peace with his own people. That then the Lord your God will end your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from the nation. So we're waiting now for Christ's return. And when he returns, he's going to send his angels to the four corners of the earth, and they're going to gather them from all nations. But we now are the first fruits of this fall harvest. That when he's gathering them from all the nations, from the four corners of the earth, this is the fall harvest. We are the spring harvest. We're the first fruits of this reconciliation and this peace between Israel and God that he will gather you from all nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. And so now what happens in verse 7? And the Lord your God will put all these curses upon your enemies, upon the Gentiles. This is this great mystery now that the Gentiles had no part in this covenant. But because of this great mystery of God's will, Gentiles are being grafted into the first fruits harvest and were being spared the fate that has been determined that the Gentiles will be punished by God, that the wrath of God will transfer. When he makes peace with his people, that wrath will transfer to mankind, to the Gentiles, and they will be brought into subjection and humiliation, that they will finally have to acknowledge the God. So first, the people of Israel must acknowledge the God of Israel. And after the people of Israel acknowledge the God of Israel, then the Gentiles will be brought to humiliation, and they will have to acknowledge that God the Holy One is in Israel. So this wrath that is on, on the people of God because of the covenant, these curses, God is going to take those same curses and put them upon your enemies and on them that hate you which have persecuted you. So that's the peace that he's talking about. There, there, there's no peace with God and his people except through Christ. Because all there is with God and his people are the curses of the covenant now. Because God is faithful. But because he's faithful to Abraham, he's made a mechanism to make peace with his people if they accept the blood of Christ. And you, so, so that's what's happening. And now the Gentiles, he says, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. So Gentiles are also now included in this reconciliation. And this is the same thing that he said to the brethren in Ephesus where he says that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world so the same deep understanding that the apostle Paul has as the apostle to the Gentiles of the role of the Gentiles in this covenant plan of God 
That same understanding that he was communicating to the brethren at Ephesus, he's communicating that same brethren, that same understanding to the brethren at Colossae. Verse 22 verse, uh, of chapter 1, In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So Jew and Gentile in the covenant, accepting the blood of Christ, the body, the, the body of his flesh through death, can now we can now all together be presented before God holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight if you continue in the faith so uh, again there's no one saved always saved here there's a, a big if this is the case and of course this is the case if you continue in the faith grounded and settled. So now there's a concern that Paul is having that these false doctrines are, are creeping into Colossae and the faithful minister Epaphras, yes he gave a good report of the brethren in Colossae and their faith and their love of all the brethren, but he also shared a concern about these false teachers and false doctrines that are creeping in. And so Paul is now making clear now, look, this is your state in Christ if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And Satan is subtle. We're seeing it today. Where brethren, our own brethren in Christ, are being seduced by carnal ego, carnal agendas. And they're putting this, I, I even saw one, brethren, one, um, one of our brethren say that their race is above their religion. Wow, are you kidding me? Christ is above all. And this hope that we have in him must be above everything. And we must not allow Satan to come in and through our ego and pride and foolishness and lack of knowledge, move us away, seduce us away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. So you should be, so Paul is being imprisoned for this work of the gospel, and you should rejoice, we should rejoice in his sufferings for us, and fill up that, so let me just read this, go back. So if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So that's, that's the seduction. So it's possible. Paul wouldn't write this if it was impossible for the brethren to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. But we're seeing it today. It's possible. Satan is very wily, very clever. And so he gets people thinking about different things and prioritizing different things. And brethren can be moved away. When Christ returns, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be a great disappointment when Christ returns. And I gave a sermon called The Great Exchange. That that's what that's, we're in the process of, this great exchange. That brethren will be out of this covenant. And the Jews who were deaf, dumb, and blind and had no knowledge of this covenant and didn't care, they'll be grafted in. And again, in their own, it's their own olive tree. So he's able to graft them in again. So be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. So sorry, this, my, my, now rejoice in my sufferings. Paul, 
is rejoicing in his sufferings for the brethren. So all of this persecution that has come upon Paul, he's rejoicing in it. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So what is he saying here? So he's rejoicing in, in his persecution for the brethren. And what he's doing, what he realizes in this persecution is that he is filling up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. So Jesus Christ was afflicted. Jesus Christ was persecuted. But there's more. That in the plan of God, that the body of Christ must undergo more persecution, must undergo more suffering. And Paul in his understanding of the afflictions of Christ and that the, the Christ is the head of the body, and the body must undergo more affliction. Paul is saying he is rejoicing in his sufferings, and that he has this opportunity to fill up, excuse me, to fill up what's left behind of the afflictions of Christ. So this is where, brethren, we must not be fearful. We have to overcome our fears. Yeah, we're heading into a dark winter, a spiritual dark winter. And it's going to be very, very difficult. All those who desire to live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. But we have to have this understanding that Paul had is that that's what the body of Christ does. That we have a mission, and we are Christians, we follow Christ, and as Christ suffered, so also must we suffer. And Paul is like, I'm good. That I'm rejoicing because I see the fruit of my work and the fruit of my sufferings. And so I'm rejoicing in this, and I'm realizing that I'm simply filling up that which is determined upon the church, upon the body of Christ. And I fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So, Christ, so Paul is happy to be persecuted and suffer for the sake of the church, realizing this is, this is foreordained. Now, I gave a sermon many years ago called Discerning the Lord's Body. It was around Passover time, and I spent time in 1 Corinthians. And some brethren just did not, it was the first time they're hearing this, they didn't like what they were hearing. And I was basically saying that the brethren were suffering in Corinth because they could not discern the Lord's body. And that taking the Passover and not discerning the Lord's body was an egregious error. This was an egregious error. That you cannot uh, uh, abuse the body of Christ and then take the body of Christ in the Passover ceremony. That this is not discerning the Lord's body. And this is exactly what Christ, what Paul is saying here, that he is taking on these afflictions for the sake of the body of Christ, which is the church. So the body of Christ is the church. So when he's writing to Corinth with this understanding that the body of Christ is the church, he says, for he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So I would encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians 11 with this understanding that the church, the whole church, every member of the church is the body of Christ. And look at what the Corinthian brethren were, were, were falling into by not discerning the Lord's body. And as we are now uh, heading into these winter months and soon the Passover will be upon us again, make sure, brethren, 
that we are not taking the Passover and not discerning the Lord's body, which is his church. And then in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 5, speaking of these sufferings that he is filling up, he says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. So Paul had a very rich understanding of the role of suffering in his ministry. So as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our comfort also abounds by Christ. So, and, and Christ will give us this comfort as we face these dark days. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. For whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So we will suffer this persecution, but we must stay true to our ministry. We must stay true to edifying the body of Christ. And as we do that, Christ will comfort us. Christ will give us comfort so that we can be effectual in this ministry. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you be also of the consolation. So this is the body of Christ. And we are suffering, you know, Paul, Paul is saying we are being afflicted, but we are being afflicted knowing that our ministry is effective, and you are now being edified, and that you also may have to partake, partake in this affliction. But when you do, you also will be comforted. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, which, by the way, all of these churches in Asia, uh, today we call this area Turkey, they, had, they all suffered the persecution of the Muslim hordes. And, and many of them who were not slaughtered were forcibly converted to Islam. So this whole, all these congregations that we're reading of in Asia, uh, today, Asia Minor, today they're all Muslim uh, cities. That's persecution. And he says, we, we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. And then in dropping down to verse 25, uh, coming back to Colossians 1, sorry. So you see just the sense of suffering that he's writing to the brethren in Corinth about now and just how he understands, even though they were even despaired of life, it got to, they got to that point where they were just in such deep sorrow, still Christ comforted them and enabled Paul and the ministers, the faithful man, to continue to comfort the brethren, knowing that they also would be subjected to this despair, but they also would be comforted. And here we are today. We, we don't really know how to suffer. We've had it good. In the Western world, we've had it really good. And people are compla complaining they don't have enough. Well, what we have is about to be taken away from us. And we, we better understand that there's more to life than, than material goods and material things. And we need to be very, very focused on this calling and the hope of this calling. Verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you. And when we were studying the epistle to the Ephesians, we came to understand that this grace of God which is given to all of us, these gifts of God that are given to all of us, are given to us for the, for the edification of the church. So any gift that we have, it's given to us for you. And any gift that you have, it's given to you for us. 
whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hidden from ages. So this mystery of the Gentiles being grafted into the covenant community, which was hidden from the beginning of the world. This mystery that, that Paul deeply understands, this, this gift of ministry which has been given to him to fulfill the word of God, which is what? Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. And that's what he said again. We read that earlier. We'll just read Ephesians 3 verse 9 to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. There's a fellowship of the mystery between Jew and Gentile, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. So that's what he's referring to here to the Colossians, that this mystery has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now it's, it's apparent, it's obvious to the saints. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. There's, there's a riches of glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this glory that was determined by, uh, by the promise to Abraham, which Israel inherited, which was to be in Israel, this same hope of glory has now been extended to those Gentiles that have been grafted in to the covenant. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So this is a real contention. We have to contend earnestly for this faith which was once delivered. And so Paul is contending and he's warning and he's teaching and he's preaching so that he may present all those who have been called into this covenant mature in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So the Apostle Paul was very, very clear about how powerful this mighty power of God was working in him, enabling him to do this great ministry, knowing that despite all the sufferings, the ministry was effective, and brethren were being edified and strengthened in it, who in turn may have to suffer persecution. But in all of this, we have to withstand false teaching and false doctrine. And the key to that is understanding the central role of Jesus Christ in the plan of God. So as we continue to unpack the um, book or the letter here to the Colossians, I'm hoping that we get a deeper understanding of the central role of Jesus Christ and we become deeply rooted in this truth. And all of the nonsense that is surrounding us, that we're not distracted by it. And I understand, yes, people are hurt and people are persecuted and all of this, and this is nothing compared to the persecution that we will face in Christ. And if we are already stumbling over hurts and past offenses, some of which we, we never even experienced ourselves, if we're already stumbling over that, how will we stand against the persecution that's coming? So let's study these, word, these words, let's study this epistle line by line. Let's, let's really ground ourselves in the central role of Jesus Christ. He's above all, and he's in us all, and we are his body, and we're here to edify each other so that at the end of the day, we all stand in Christ, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.